Welcome to Positive Talk Radio. We're glad you're here. I'm Kevin McDonald, your host for this grand adventure, and I thank you for joining us. You see, our mission is to create a positive, personal connection to all things with courage and love. We invite terrific guests, interesting topics, and great conversation, all in a fun, entertaining way. And we always manage to learn something, too. So I hope you will stay right where you are for this episode of Positive Talk Radio. And welcome, everybody, to another episode of Positive Talk Radio. My name is Kevin McDonald. I'm your host. And today we've got a great show for you. I hope that you'll stay for the entire time. We have a gentleman who is sitting right over there. You can see him right there. His name is Ty Glover. And he has a website that's called Think Different Nation. And so you can go there. It's thinkdifferentnation.com. And you can follow right along with what we're talking about. And uh, basically, we're going to talk about him and his work and how he can help you push through the barriers in your life to get you to do the things that you've always wanted to do but are scared to do them or for whatever reason don't do them and uh we're going to talk all about that so ty welcome to the show how are you thank you thank you kevin for having me on board i'm doing great oh that's a, that's a, that's awesome tell us a little bit about your website and what it is that you do you know it, it's funny that um the website kind of developed over a series of, um, of, of years, should we say, you know, there's a concept called um, as below, so as above, meaning that it takes layers and layers of experiences to be able to build out an understanding of any given topic, for example. If you watch, just like watching the Game of Thrones, I don't know if you've ever done that, but the more you watch it, the more you repeat that episode, the more you build the knowledge of what the author was trying to say within the story. That's the same thing it is with life, you know? So, what to think different nation is is i'd say it's a catalyst um i call it a catalyst for change because it recognizes two things it recognizes first of all the fact that we are the the, the most adaptive species that has ever existed on the face of this planet I mean, we've traveled through all different parts of the world itself we've survived the cold the heat we adapt to change amazingly well we've even ventured off the planet the other thing that's important to recognize is that we are the first civilization to ever understand that we can go extinct. And in fact, we will if we do not correct course. So Think Different Nation is a catalyst for change in capturing the best ideas and assembling them for other ideas to create a base for change. That's pretty much a nutshell what it is. Well, that's, that's, that's pretty awesome because right now in our world, we are in the midst of some cataclysmic changes. Yes, we are. You know, it, it's um, the funny thing is, as I saw the actual migrant workers coming up, or at least migrants coming out of Central and South America, you saw even the Haitians leaving uh, South America and coming up. I, I started to recognize early on, especially this summer with the droughts we had in California, that fact that we are seeing climate change and the impact, and we're seeing what would normally be classified as biblical proportion migrations. And if you think about the fact that Civilizations have collapsed primarily because of these causes. You have climatic changes, people have to migrate to other areas, and then things seem to fall apart, especially when you bring in the instability of the politics. 
in those areas. So, you know, we're, we are seeing change. We can adapt to the change if we understand and if we look ahead. But the problem is, we as a civilization, as a people, we, we you know, Bram Hancock says we have amnesia. We don't have the ability to be able to see out far enough to understand the consequences of those change. For example, um, yeah, let me pull a slide for you. I kind of put something together that can best articulate it in a deep time way. All right. And we're, we're doing this live, folks, so we are trying to put this together as we speak. And, uh, and so please bear with us. The information is well worth receiving. And by the way, I, we... so I can't share my slide or my, my deck directly. I have to share it through, upload it more or less. Is that correct, Kevin? I think so. I believe so. Yeah. Well, you can uh, um, pull it, pull it up on your screen, and then when you hit share, uh, it'll it will um, um, share it to my to my site, and then I I br can bring it up from there. Okay. So let me grab it real quick, and then I will share it directly with you. And by the way, we're talking with Ty Glover, and we are working to. Uh, this is this is always a a. a uh, an experience to do this part and we shall see and this should be right here beautiful here it is and you should be able to see it or at least you should have a Kevin uploading it's uh it isn't isn't here quite yet there it goes processing wow <laughs> so, you know, the bottom line of what I'm going to share with you is the fact that we live in compressed timelines. I mean, if you think about the fact that our average lifespan is 65, maybe 70 years if we're lucky, we see our children, hopefully the same, if not more of a lifespan. Our parents, same, similar, but different. But if you think about it, when it comes to our total visibility of the change that we're seeing within our immediate circle, it's about maybe 150 years in total that we've got contact with our parents going back, maybe our grandparents, and then our children going forward. So there's not a lot of real time that we have in our grasp from the standpoint of being able to process what time really means. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Because we don't get the view, uh, what I call the 50,000 foot view. We get a, a view from the ground level and we get to see the, uh, the tree in front of us and the tree behind us, but you know, from a yeah. from a, a global perspective, I mean, the Earth has been around for four and a half billion years, so the amount of time that we are here is a really, really minute uh, snapshot in time. Exactly, and I think that's one of our biggest challenges is that we don't really recognize and understand the impact of time. For example, one of the things that I use within my program, Think Different Nation, is something called. The universal principles of reality. And now these guys, they date back way into antiquity, you know, to the second and third dynasties of the Egyptian empire. And think about this. Man has been around in our current form for roughly two to 3,000 years, meaning cognitively we've had the ability to process information the same way we do today. But we didn't have those experiences from which we could pull from to be able to create this, the skyscrapers and the towers because we just didn't have that base yet. We were slowly building. 
But when you came into the 5,000, more or less 5,000 years ago, and you had the Egyptian Empire coming into its rise, you had the Minoans about 500 years after that. But with that Egyptian Empire, one thing that was very interesting is the fact that it's been around for over 3,600 years. And when you had people in temples who more or less practiced that area of existentialism and wondering where are we and how are we going, what is my destiny once I leave this earth? You have a tendency of digging real deep into your thoughts. And if they have the same basic abilities as we have today to be able to process information and come to conclusions, then they would have been so much further than we can even imagine from the standpoint of they're not going in the direction that we are building cars or transportation modes. They're going into the direction of figuring out thought and afterthought and, again, those existential questions. So Western culture has only been around for 600 years, and we've taken all that we could grab from that specific area, the antiquity or the, the ancients, and we grab what we could, what wasn't lost, and we build upon it. For example, Newton coming up with his theories on mechanics and how the world works. Man, that was a long, slow upload. <laughs> uh, let me see if I can go to the slide. Oh, hold on. There we go. Um, so let me yeah, start with this slide right here. This kind of gives you a visibility to more or less things, how things plan, pan out. So here we're talking about my parents, my grandparents, and then my great-grandparents. Now, interesting enough, as below, they're subsimilar or rather I'm subsimilar from them. I've changed and developed from them as individuals. But my great-grandmother was born in about 1865, 1864, and I had the opportunity to meet her. I think she passed when I was about three or four years old, so I do distinctly remember her. But if you think about it, it's really closer than we can imagine, the Civil War itself in that whole period of time. It's not that far outside of the realm of really where we are. But if you travel that further back, you know, again, we've got Western culture, and all these little blocks are in terms of elections so because we can think in terms of the next four years and then the next election coming up we have those and typically we live through about 17 of them if you're going to be living up to about 65 or 70 years old but when you start going back in time here for example you've got alexander uh you've got isaac newton if you take it further back in time then you've got a number of events you've got the iron age going back before that you've got the um the Bronze Age, you've got the collapse. So you can see basically over time how things, civilizations have developed, have learned. And look at the Egyptian civilization, 3,600 years of continuous work to understand the mind, to understand what is reality and what happens after our reality is over. That's a lot of time of layering of experiences and understandings. And the challenge with it is that when we collapsed about three or 400 A.D. after the death of Christ and we lost all that knowledge, it disappeared for over a thousand years. And it wasn't until the Medicis actually began to go and have people search in the back uh, catacombs of churches all throughout the Mediterranean and Europe and proper. And they were able to find small pieces of information and fragments, um, but just a percentage of the actual works from the esoteric um, policies or the esoteric belief systems we're able to recover from. And who used that? All the scientists from Newton onwards would capture that information as, 
Matter of fact, when you think of it, Newton, Isaac Newton wrote what's called the Emerald Tablet. Now, when you think of, um, for example, these, these esoteric belief systems, the Kabbalion is an esoteric belief system that, or of which, Newton took that, that work and rewrote it from, I believe it was Greek, into English, into an understandable form, which means that these principles are recognized as the fundamental principles and processes by the way the universe operates. So he understood it, he grasped it, and it allowed him to be able to develop out his work even further on. But the whole point of this is we've lost so much information that was captured throughout the years of antiquity, and now we're really trying to stumble our way, find our way through it. And You're right. Please, Kevin, sorry. No, no, no. I was, I was just going to say, you're right because a lot of information. If you look at the, um, um, the Sanskrit, and you look at the, the a lot of uh, information from different cultures that goes back, uh, way back. A lot of that stuff has been lost to us, and not only has it been lost to us, a lot of times we are we disregard it. Most definitely, and, and it's, uh, it's amazing that we do because, of course, it was the. It was the Roman Catholic Church that kind of decided what they were going to incorporate into the actual belief system itself, Christianity, and decided what wasn't appropriate, so therefore they moved it aside. They, to a great extent, you lost a lot of that um, simply because it was counter to what the Roman Catholic Church wanted to still instill in people from the standpoint of believing in that top person or believing in Christianity, in Christ, in God as being um, the key to everything. So from that, we lost so much information, but it was absorbed in to what the Roman Catholic Church could actually take on, for example. I'm going to show you one slide here, and my apologies, for example, but having to move through. But if you think about it in time, in terms of time, I've got a number of different animals that are lined up here. We go back 50 million years, and I can't really read it all that well, but uh, Pecetus was the first one, starting about 50 million years ago. It evolved into the second one which evolved into the third, into the fourth, into the fifth, and then what we know as being the modern oil today. So they know that because there's a series of things that happen along the way. Again, as below, so as above. We are all subsimilar to that which came before us. And when it comes to mammals, the one thing that is common within mammals, first thing is we've got one bone right here that extends across. We've got two bones that extend right here. And then we've got a series of smaller bones. And if you look at every mammal that exists today, it's got that same configuration of bone structures because it came from the same source. And this particular animal, it, it entered into the ocean roughly about 50 million years ago, and it adapted into every single mammal that exists in the seas today. Now, it, it, can, be, it can be really interesting when you think about these concepts that way that change affects everything but if you think about the principle of vibration and you know there are seven different principles within the principles of reality the principle of vibration it can be difficult to grasp at first but it's basically everything changes and it's changing constantly so here we have Mount Everest roughly 70,000 or rather 70 million years ago it was one of the lowest points on Earth. It was actually uh, in the bottom of the Indian Ocean. It rose to the top point, the top peak, and on Earth, rather, 
um, to 29,000 feet above sea level in about 50 million years. So now what does change constitute? That's about a half of an inch per year. It's imperceptible. You can't see it, but nonetheless, it is there. And over the course of 50 million years, a half of an inch per year, it rose from the bottom to the top. Now, going back to the whole evolution concept, if you think about, for example, I, I presented the, the wolf, the marine uh, mammal evolution unfolding. You can actually go, and there's a great video, there's a great show on Amazon right now called, by that name, the wolf, marine mammal evolution unfolding, where you can see that same type of an animal that I depict right here, but this time it's the wolf, very similar. It's going into the ocean. And it's spending more time in the British Columbia area, swimming from island to island to island, which is something that wolves typically do not do. It's cold weather, and these animals are adapting to that cold. They're also eating fish. The funny thing there is that they're recognizing the fact that they cannot eat the whole fish because the whole fish has worms. And when they do it, they will die from the worms. Now, bears in that area, bears can eat it because they hibernate, which means as they're hibernating, the worms die. But the wolf has recognized it needs to eat the actual heads itself to be able to survive. So slowly moving, slowly they're moving into the oceans. Slowly they're swimming from island to island, spending more time in those cold waters. You can imagine roughly in 50, 100, 200, 10,000, whatever amount of time, they are going to be going back into the ocean. So everything changes. It's just a matter of can you pull out far enough to see the changes occurring. Do you see um, changes now, like the wolf? Do you see changes in other uh, animals on the on the planet? Is that is that something that is just kind of the evolutionary uh, 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 track that, of how everything changes over time? That would be it. You know, again, if you think about that principle that everything changes, it's got to go in one direction or another. So it will be something every day, for example, every hour, every minute, every second, we are something subsimilar to what we were the minute before, the second, the hour, the year, 10,000 years before, because we're always changing. So yeah, you're seeing everything, and it's impacting every animal that exists. Where it's going to go, no one can say, but nonetheless, change is constant. You know, and it's funny that I had a guy I was talking to who was visiting... Um, visiting Jamaica, he was talking to me about, I think it was Jamaica or the Bahamas, and talking about the pigs that go swimming in the ocean, and they're swimming around you, and, and they like to spend a great deal of time in the ocean. And he said, but I don't care what happens, they will always be pigs. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, that's the exact opposite of change. You can't always be anything because change is constant. You know, mountains, they break down, they, they disintegrate it's just a natural evolutionary process of a mountain because microbes eat stone you know you may not have the lens to be able to pull back far enough to be able to see the actual changes occurring within our lifetime our short compact period of life but you can definitely recognize the fact that everything is changing that's the one thing you can pretty much count on everything changes and it changes on an ongoing basis now now in, in a lot of cases because of the tectonic plates and stuff, which is one of the reasons that uh, Mount Everest got so big, is because of the the movement of the Earth and the plates within it. But th th those are always moving all the time, aren't they? Correct, correct. Everything's moving all the time. So when it comes, you know, and it, it's that's such a hard concept to realize 
because we, we can't, again, comprehend it. Scientists are now being able to take particles, take atoms, and freeze atoms down to its lowest possible temperature. And they freeze it lower and lower and lower. The thing is, you can always find more decimal places or more zeros to the right of the decimal place because while you can always freeze it lower, you can't reach that temperature or at least modern gauges and measurements hasn't been able to ever reach that temperature to the maximum amount where it will stop. Because again, the principle of vibration, everything changes. Well, and um, if, you, if you talk about energy and vibration like Tesla did, um, that everything, everything is, uh, is moving all the time and including, uh, rocks and things that you might think uh, when you look at them are very stable. And, but if you get in at a certain level, everything is vibrating, everything's moving. Exactly. Now, and if you look at it, that's part of both scientific belief systems and understandings, quantum physics tells us that, but also the, again, the Kabbalion tells you that, and that was written about 2,000, 3,000 years ago, but also Buddhist faith systems believes that everything vibrates. That's that energy that we talk about. Everything is composed of energy. So you've got an alignment with a number of different things that are taking us in a direction that are pulling us away from some of our traditional belief systems, again, that were centered around the Roman Catholic Church and the belief that, that the church was the center of everything and that the sun revolved around the earth. I mean, there was a great interest in disconnecting those thoughts and having everyone believe in the church as being the center of all. And it wasn't, I think it was until Galileo that understood the fact that, wait a minute, that's not how things work. Now, he wrote it down, he documented it, and he captured it. But what he was originally being asked to do was the church wanted him to go and they wanted him to document the actual, create a calendar basically so they can have these religious events and track the way things are happening from a religious standpoint for calendar. When Galileo started doing it, he started recognizing, wait a minute, the earth is not revolved around by the sun, but it's rather the earth that revolves around the sun, which means we are not the center of the universe. And he couldn't tell the church that because he would have wound up uh, burning in a fire. So he wrote it in his manual, in his manuscripts, and when he passed away, it was released, and there was no harm, obviously, that could be caused to him. But it was a fundamental shift in the way humanity or we thought about our existence within the universe. It was no longer controlled by the church. Now, well, which, uh, Newton took that and took it even further. And the, um, if you follow history, if you go back in time to Constantine and, uh, and in that, that time frame when the, when the Bible was created or was assembled, I should say, and they decided what was going to be in it and what wasn't going to be in it. A lot of it had to do with uh, the power of the day in order to control the masses. At least that's my opinion. What do you think? No, most definitely. It, it was the objective of, and I, I don't believe that, they were talking about Constantine and about the fact that he was actually a pagan. He believed in real pagan beliefs. But he Correct. thought it was easier to organize people around Christianity in a structure that they can build to it as opposed to following the pagan, or trying to adopt these different pagan beliefs. So what did he do? He grabbed everything he could grab from the pagan beliefs, and he incorporated them directly into the Christian belief system, because just because it's um, different doesn't mean it's wrong. And he recognized that these are the same premises that we need to incorporate. 
the Kabbalion, the universal principles of reality, are incorporated in every Abrahamic belief system that, that exists. Because, again, it's foundational. It's not a religion. There's no dogma associated with it. It's just principles of how do you understand reality and how do we operate within this space. And that is what I really use when I work with people to understand from where innovation and creativity comes from. Because going back to principle number two, principle of correspondence, as below, so as above. You cannot create new ideas unless you capitalize and tap into the experiences that you've had to date. Everything comes from what has already passed, what has already transpired. And because of that, it's the experiences that you gather over time which can then dictate your creative or your creativity in the future because of the experiences of the past. Am I, am I lost? That's exactly how it works. If I go back here, for example, I'm going to find one slide. And normally these roll out, so it's not the greatest way of showing it. But if I find, here's that example we were talking about with respect to evolution. You know, the human, one bone, two bones, and then a series of smaller bones. Whether you're talking about a horse, a dog, or whatever animal is, this is the same configuration that exists within all animals, all mammals, rather. And that's how they were able to make the deduction that going back, and it's actually going back to about 400 million years ago, where that one animal that had this configuration, I think it was called Tectoplia, or something to that effect. I'm probably pronouncing it incorrectly, Tectoplia. But it exited the ocean went up on land, and that was the beginning of all mammals. But if I go here to this one slide, here's a great slide. Now this right here, for example, instinctive events. This is the way we think. This is the way we process information. And I don't know if the next one's going to roll in, but what we do is we observe. Everything that we see, it doesn't matter who we are as an individual, as a person, or even as an animal in general, when you walk through an environment, you observe that which you see around you. And your brain automatically seeks to interpret that which it sees. Whether you're talking about a deer walking through a, through a field, it's looking around, it generalizes pretty much everything it sees from the grass that's on the ground to the scent, the smells that are coming through, whatever it is, the sounds that you're hearing, it generalizes. When it sees a break in that generalization, meaning a scent that it doesn't recognize pop up, or something visual that it sees, maybe a break in a particular pattern, it will go and will this roll out? Unfortunately, it didn't roll out. But what it will do is it will go and focus in on that dissimilar thing, what I call that asymmetric object that it sees. And it will make a deduction about that object. And it will determine whether this object is friendly, whether it's a foe, what to do, and then it moves on. And it will determine the course of action, whether it needs to run and hide or whether it needs to just go back and eat it. But this is something that we as humans do as well. Instinctively, this is where we are naturally inclined to go. The next thing, though, is that, or rather, what that innovative mind does, what the creative mind does, is they look at things differently. They do the same exact setup, the same exact process of generalizing. And then, for the most part, when you see a door, it's a rectangle, it's got a round thing on it, you can turn it. You know automatically, and you never have to contemplate it again. But when they see things that are asymmetrical, that stand out to their eyes, to what they're used to seeing, that's that creative mind that will go in and dig deeper and try to understand it, try to make a deduction as to 
well, how does it work? What does it do? What's it used for? They tried to create a whole lot of different understandings around it. And Roger Kipling used to say, he wrote a story about um, his seven or six wise servants who would send them around. And those wise servants are the, uh, the, the well, what if I, or well, why can't I, or how is it, why is it, all those different W questions and the H's of the hows. They ponder the possibilities of the thought, and then they work to find a solution to the question. Now, that innovative mind, what they do is they will take it, they will run it through, process it, and then they'll store it in their subconscious. They'll store it in their memory, and they'll walk away. But the way they store it is by processing it, by putting even a process of their own into place as to how they think it works. For example, I'll see things around me, and I will, won't know what it is, won't know how it works, but I will make a deduction, A, of what it is. And I will make a deduction, B, of how it works. And I will create the process in my mind as to how I would get it to work if I were creating it, and then I walk away. It doesn't matter whether I'm wrong or I'm right, or it doesn't matter itself. It's the process of walking through the examination and conducting the process examination in your mind. That's what we store in our subconscious when we move on. It's not until, again, you're sitting in that environment where you're connecting all these different pieces together where that's where you're getting those great ideas. Again, looking at our experiences. Now, where does intuition come into play here? Where does intuition come into play? I think the intuition comes into play when, in fact, you know, it's a, it's a great question. Intuition, some would say it's part of the subconscious speaking to you. It's part of that subconscious mind that has a suggestion for you to go and look, do, operate, or whatever that intuition is directing you to do. So that's part of what they would say, that sixth sense. It's not part of our sight, sound, smell, touch, taste. It's that part of the mind that is within the subconscious that can stand out and point you in directions where you were not necessarily inclined to go. Gotcha. Because, because, and, and I'm asking about intuition because, uh, or inspiration is another one, uh, that, that, you know, we get inspired by things or, and sometimes it appears that it's not coming from us. It is coming from uh, the other side or it's coming from uh spirit or it's coming from somewhere. Uh, does that make sense? No, that, that makes complete perfect sense. Um, you know, I'd say two things. When it comes to ideas, we used to have these ideas that, in fact, I mean, I would hear it by motivational speakers or whatever, speak of the fact that three or four people get the same idea, that same innovative concept at the same time. It's just the ones who capitalize on it are the ones who benefit. And I don't think that's how it works at all. It's more so the person who has the experiences that includes the pieces that are necessary to form the idea are the ones that are actually coming up with those insights. So you have to have a certain number of experiences in order to be able to create something new that's tied to those experiences. For example, if you think about, um, if I were to ask you to think about a, a red car, you probably automatically have a mind, your mind and set for the type of red car that you're thinking of. You may have an experience with a red car, you may have seen it on TV, but you don't get something from nothing. Something has to come from something. Correct. So the expression is nothing, when you have nothing, then nothing comes. When you have something, then what comes? And I think that's right here as well. When you have something, nothing, nothing comes. When you have something from that, something subsimilar comes. 
So you have to have at least something that ties you in. You can't think of a um, of an idea that has never been thought of before. You need the connection to be able to establish it. And then from our experiences, what we do is we observe, we create ideas around it, we create thoughts, considerations, and then we create connections. And then that's where we have the idea. And moving around in the circle continuously is finally when that last part that we roll out, but finally when the actual idea emerges. For example, if you look at our cell phones, you had to have the idea for the one preceding before you could build the next one. You had the idea for this first one before you could build the 1G, the 2G, 3G, and so forth. So you know, these are processes from which you need to have a basis to build. So now you mentioned that intuition. It's an interesting thing that the first principle of reality states that the all is in the mind. Everything right occurs right here within our mind. Now, to give you an example of that, and, it, and it's a cruel one, but if I were to take you and cut off your arm, would you still be Kevin? Yes. What about if I cut off all of your arms and your legs? I would be in pain. <laughs> but I'd be, if you I were would, it, you would be Kevin. I still would be, yeah. If I were to cut off your head and you were to survive it, what would you be? I would be Kevin. And you would have, so your conscious mind would be there and you would understand the fact that I can no longer see, I can no longer smell, hear, taste, touch, which means you'd be more or less in a black void, I guess you can kind of imagine as being. But the interesting thing is that's your conscious mind that's there. Your subconscious mind makes up about 94% of the matter that exists, which means that's where your real world is created within the subconscious mind. So that intuition that you're talking about, it comes from that subconscious mind that's picking up on those things that you may not have consciously recognized in your conscious, but it's feeding it to you because it's picking them up. Interesting. Because, because well, so let me ask you that. Sure. Um, when we're talking about the work that you're doing and getting people to get out of their own way and to to take something from the idea stage that that they come up with I, what what is it about about the human that a lot of us get an idea and we just let it sit there and we don't do anything with it but there's somebody that that does act on it what is the difference between those people you know it, that's a um I've wondered that myself. <laughs> you know, I, I've, been, I've been a prolific creator. You know, one thing that I'm doing, I, I'm very good at, is I'm very good at creating. I can conceptualize. And it, it's spoken of, for example, as being an alchemic process or alchemy, if you're familiar with the term, an alchemic process. Because, you know, you've seen, for example, how architects can take their slide rollers, their, their, their pens, their, their compasses, and they can create great works on paper, and then they can build those great works. Um, or Nicholas Tesla, who could create great products, great things, great innovations, but he would tell you, for example, he got to a point where he never had to put anything down on paper. He could sketch it all, create it all, design it all within his mind, within his consciousness, before he ever had to lay anything on paper. And that is an alchemy process. Just like being an inventor, a, uh, an innovator, it's a matter of you work with your Excel spreadsheets and your PowerPoints and you're conceptualizing these things on hard copy for such a long period of time that now you can create them in your mind 
and design them in such a way where you can move the parts around and see how it's going to work differently in different markets, different communities, and so forth. So it's a very, I can't say easy process, but it is an alchemic process where you gain control over your creativity. Now, as far as what people actually bring those ideas to fruition, I used to think about that because I've been, like I said, a prolific creator, but I haven't had the success of being able to bring those ideas to market. And I began to recognize what my pastor used to say back in the day, when he used to say, the cemetery is filled with some of the greatest ideas. It's the wealthiest place that has ever existed because people will move on, they will transition, they will pass, and they don't bring their ideas to the marketplace. And I think about it, you know, Les Brown used to say my, his greatest fear was lying on his deathbed and having the ghosts from all the ideas that he had ever had in the past come to him and say, what happened? Now I die with you. And I tell you, that's been my greatest fear as well because I have never had a problem developing an idea. I think in terms of processes. And when you think in terms of processes, it's easy to follow those steps of what is possible, what is possible from a creation standpoint. But I didn't have other areas that were key. For example, there's a gentleman by the name of Howard Gardner. He's a retired Harvard University professor in psychology, and he has a concept called multiple intelligences. As a matter of fact, he's written over seven or eight different books on multiple intelligences for academia. And he believes that we're all structured not just according to that logical mathematics that we all hear everybody talk about when it comes to the IQ test. Now, not as much as before, but I, I know in back in your time, and I know in my time, the IQ test and what was your score was one of those things that would determine how intelligent you were. But Howard Gardner has the understanding of the fact that we don't operate according to one intelligence. For example, there are nine different types. The naturalist is that person who may be the indigenous person in the Amazon who understands flora, fauna. They, they see the sky. They see big pictures. They know what's happening based on the scent using their five senses. So they couldn't take an IQ test and do and pass it successfully, but no one can enter into their realm and tell them one tenth they know about their space. And if you look at the musical or the musicians or the physical, the bodily kinetics for the people who are use their bodies, again, nine different types. So if you're trying to align yourself and think in terms of, well, I'm not good at this area, therefore I'm not good, then you're missing out a whole lot of opportunities to be able to find out where you really excel because we don't just exist within one realm of intelligence. We exist as far as a combination of all those different types of intelligences some stronger than in other areas. Exactly. And, and sometimes it would seem to me that that while you may be, as in your case, may be extraordinarily creative, it would be great to hook up with somebody that is by nature a, um, um, a, a natural business builder or an entrepreneur, somebody that could... Uh, understand to take the idea and the concept that you have and to take it to that next level. Yeah. And it, you know, it's taken me a long time to get to where I am again, you know, as below, so as above, I wouldn't be here if it were not for my experiences from the past. So I leverage all those experiences. And one of the experiences I've also recognized the fact that I know where I'm good. And so now I'm able to actually, to actually take advantage because in using that whole thing about alchemy, the, I think I used that expression before. Although 
your path may be impeded. There can be no impeding your intention or disposition, or you can adapt. You can accommodate. And this is Marcus Aurelius who said this back in, I think, 170 or thereabouts AD on one of his campaigns. But he says, the mind adapts and converts to its own acting the obstacle to, to its own purpose, which means that that obstacle that you're seeing becomes fuel for the actual path that you follow. This is part of an alchemic process, or what they say is part of mental alchemy, because you're taking the opposite of what you're dealing with, and then you're finding that opposite, and you're thinking, moving in that direction. That's called the principle of polarity. So I began to recognize my strengths, my weaknesses. I knew them. I'm not good on the interpersonal. So when it came time to having those discussions and being out there and, and smoozing with the venture capitalists and so forth, I just couldn't do that. I wasn't good in that space. And therefore, I had to find another way to be able to move through without having to rely on those folks. And that's what I do. Wait, which is which is really interesting. Now, in, in, on your website, I'm looking here, and it, uh, you have a page where it says uh, Future Innovators. Right. Find my super you have a link to find my superpower how do you help people find their superpower so now here's the thing that i was looking at there first of all um you might be familiar with the the asperger's or asperger's or autism the autism spectrum sure um, that whole term of neurodivergent nowadays i would definitely be one of those people on the neurodivergent spectrum where the social side is very challenging for me to be able to interpret how should i feel about any given situation but for future innovators, rather, I focus in on those people who are inclined to fixing. You can't. You see something, you hear something, whatever your senses are that you rely on, and you can't get it out of your mind. For example, things that I've seen, I will go into it at the nth level of detail. And again, going back to that process of generalizing it, taking it in, trying to understand what it is, how it works, that's fixation. And so a lot of young people, especially on the autism spectrum, very high functioning or the Asperger's or should we say the neurodivergent, they have a tendency to fixate. They can't pull away from a subject once they start thinking about that subject. And they will spend hours and days focusing in on trying to understand everything about that specific thing. That's a superpower in itself. Now you can see it as being a derailer from where you want to go or where you may need to go if in fact it's impacting you in that way. But you can also see it as being a, an ability that allows you to examine in critical, great detail. And what I do with my site is, for those types of people, I enable them to capture those important fixations. You know, In other words, I use, for example, on your cell phone. And I can show you that if you like. Um, maybe I can show you that. Here's an example of how that works. I might not get a video through here. Uh, I don't think I'm going to get a video. No, it's not going to work there. But the app that I use, the app that I've developed, allows you to go and be able to, whether in fact you are that visual person from the standpoint of whether you want to capture pictures, whether you are the auditorial person, whether you want to be able to, how do you basically capture your notes? I've got a thousand different notebooks strong around my house for years back where all my ideas exist in all these different notebooks categorized or rather not categorized whereas the app that I created allows that person to be able to go forward and I want to drop this one um, the app that I created allows that person to be able to go forward and capture those experiences 
whether in fact it was captured via the text that you're writing, whether you're sitting in the bathroom or whatever, whatever these ideas that you have, whatever they are, you're capturing them and you're pulling them into your phone and then you're sending them to a board, what's called a Kanban, on a website that allows you to be able to go back later on and organize those thoughts and now have vivid details. You're no longer just pondering, wondering, and then walking away and forgetting about that critical piece of input that could go into your latest or your newest idea, but rather you're storing them in vivid detail so you can come back to it at a later point and further investigate it to help to further build up your concepts and your ideas. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so by the way, we're talking with uh, Ty Glover, who's got the, the website, go to uh, thinkdifferentnation.com and find out all about him and his work. If somebody wants to come and work with you, Ty, what does that look like? How, how can they come and work with you? Great question. Great question. The best thing to do for to come and work with us, or at least have a discussion to find out whether it's right for you, is to simply come to our website. I have 30-minute or 45-minute sessions available where anybody can schedule time and come in and have a conversation and get to know what it is. You know, it's a big fish, and um, it, it's very difficult. What's the expression? How do you talk to somebody in a, in a 10-minute swap of time about principles of reality and what reality is? These are long conversations, and um, it can be very challenging for a person to conceptualize. You know, even with the Kabbalion itself, it talks about the fact that the, the lips or the ears are, the, the lips are, are sealed except to those of wisdom. Something to that effect, meaning that 99% of the population may not be at the level of development of being able to conceptualize what constitutes the way we work within reality. Because it takes, again, a layering of experiences. And the Kabbalion would say, for example, it may be another several hundred lifetimes before you reach that level of vibration where you can now start to understand the way things conceptually work within the reality in that structure. So I work with people to understand those basic concepts. If they join the program, you know, it's the young innovators, it's the future innovators. That's the lowest cost program and it allows people to basically come in and capture those sentiments or those experiences and you store them. And let's see what's gonna happen over the six months, the years that you're saving those different events you will find patterns that emerge within all the different things that you've collected and all the different ideas that you've stored there. But we also have our market that's targeting our, let's just say our destined, you are destined. Whereas those folks that don't want to leave those ideas right there watching them as they transition out of this world. And this allows them an opportunity. I coach them and teach them how do you actually work multiple projects, just like Mount Everest moving up a half of an inch per year for 50 million years. You can do the same thing, putting in an hour, putting in an hour a week or whatever amount of time you're able to provide to bring your ideas to fruition. You know, bottom line, it's more near than before if you work at it. So that's the best way to work with me from the standpoint of first coming in and understanding where you're trying to go with your ideas and your thoughts. And and uh, you've also got something called the ID Nation Control Tower. Or I, 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 I'm not sure how to say that, but anyway, it's a control tower. The ideation control tower or innovation control tower is basically that tower where you're storing those experiences that you've had. Again, if you're in a, in a, if you're in any given event and you're capturing those notes that would normally go into that notebook and now you're putting them into your, your phone and you're sending them over to that Kanban board, which is like a project management tool where you can flow those ideas through. 
then now you're building up what I call experiences. Those are reference points, and those reference points constitute the fundamental basis from which all of your ideas will come from in the future, bar none. Again, they're not going to get ideas from Kevin unless Kevin gives them an idea that they store. They're only going to get an idea that they bring in, take on, and then document, or at least have some way of retrieving. We provide that way of retrieving. Well, that's cool. That 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 has value in itself, right there. It, it is. It's um, you know, it's the way I work, at least the way I've been fundamentally working, you know, for much of my life. And by being able to bring those ideas into that panel, into your board, our goal eventually is to be able to tap into you as well as all the other people that have those ideas in their boards and connect those people together with other people around the world who think similarly because by presenting those people with the challenges that we face as a civilization, as a people, as a community, by presenting those challenges and presenting them with trends that are taking place within the marketplace from the standpoint of technologies that are emerging, 5G, for example, or whether you're talking about artificial intelligence or AI or machine learning, by feeding that same person the possible inputs that can help them to connect to the ideas that they're storing, then that's where they're going to be able to start to build an understanding of where they'd like to take that idea. It's called world building, and it's done, for example, in science fiction. I mean, where does science get a great deal of their ideas from? They get it from science fiction writers. Science fiction writers write it, they manifest it into existence. And then you have the scientists who now understand a possibility and then start creating based on the possibilities that they understand. This is the same way. It's world building. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, you, you know who Gene Roddenberry is, right? Or was. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he was in the, he built a Star Trek series and he had innovative thoughts about what was going to happen in the 23rd century, including a food replicator, including uh, uh, lasers and, and a, the, the basic one that has come to pass is the communicator. Right. Now, which one led what? Was it that the communicator followed the, 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 the experience of creating it on Star Trek and say this is what's possible and then they moved in that direction or was it in fact, obviously Eugene Rottenberry didn't get it from the communicator that currently exists. So it came from the understanding of what's possible and science fiction writers create what is possible in the minds of scientists. Exactly, because a communicator looks suspiciously like the old flip phone. Exactly. That was- <laughs> right, right. And and I I tend to think that since we are coming more in tune tune with the fact that we are all energy that and energy can be manipulated to some degree that it may end up that we can to build a food replicator or we can do a transporter and transport our molecules across the universe. Well, no. So if you listen to, for example, Einstein, which is which is funny, and he talks about, for example, matter and, and material, and he speaks of that space-time continuum, the fact that you can't have space existing without connecting it to time. In other words, I can't have Kevin in a particular situation without having Kevin in a particular situation at a particular time. It's one of those, for example, your particles have to exist at a location at a specific period of time, and you are made up of 50 trillion cells, so you are made up of a a conglomeration of particles. So... He was talking about, or at least they were, I was watching a show when they were talking about the ability to be able to actually 
travel through time may not be what we think it is. It would be something subsimilar to what we think it is. So as long as you're going in that direction and leveraging those principles that actually present to you what is really truly possible or not possible, once you're following the principles, then you can find the path that you want to follow that takes you in a direction that you want to go into. Again, you may be completely ending up in a different spot than where you want to end up, but you will come out with some results that you could have never have imagined when you first started taking that journey. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And uh, by the way, again, we're talking with uh, with uh, Ty Glover, and he's got the website. Go to it, and you can find out all kinds of things. Uh, and his his website is I went off that page. It's uh, uh, Ty. What's your website again? Uh, no, it's thinkdifferentnation.com. Thinkdifferentnation.com. It's real simple. Yep, thinkdifferentnation.com. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. I, I mean, you, you now have given me something to think about, and my brain hurts all at the same time. Uh-huh. Well, I hope not too much. <laughs> but thank you, Kevin, for the opportunity to be able to come and speak with, to your guests, to your audience. Yeah, see, I'm, I'm my brain works differently. I'm a creative guy, but I'm not I'm not a structure guy that can put together a an idea and bring it to fruition. That that I leave that to you guys. Well, you know, and that's funny because I've always, I've been thinking about the fact that I've always thought in terms of process. You know, I remember driving down the road and uh, when I was a kid and looking out and seeing uh, someone walking down the street and wondering if I ever needed to, could I find that person five years from now? Are the cameras or something else? And so by thinking in terms of what is the process that I would leverage to do what I want to do, made my brain start thinking automatically in terms of, I put everything in terms of a process. And when it comes to creativity, it's a process. Principle of cause and effect. Everything is rules-based. Everything is a process. And so if you can start to understand the processes, you can gain more control in your ability to be able to leverage those processes. Now, that, that, that I agree with 100%, because it's also experiential. Because exactly. as, as, you, uh, as you grow, as you learn things, as, as you work to be creative in different aspects, it, it becomes part of your experience that allows you to grow into better experience. It's that layering effect. You, you cannot do it. You know, you can't go again from a, from a, the first version of the iPhone to the 20th version or the 13th version just by jumping there. You know, if you look at common example for you, the, uh, the terracotta warriors of China, those terracotta warriors, when you look at them, people would say, for example, that, it wasn't the actual Chinese that came up with the idea to build that, but yet that was exposure to Greece because when you look at the structures, they were built just like Grecian structures, Grecian sculptures. And you can't find a path showing the Chinese ability to be better and better and better and better at creating statues. All of a sudden, they come out of the blocks with beautiful, what is it, like three or 4,000 statues modeled after individual people from nothing. So you can't get something from nothing, which means that there must have been some Grecian uh, involvement or influence that will help them to be able to propel themselves forward. So that's the way layering works. You have to have the layers in order to be able to build from. I think I showed you that one picture of, um, of that, I believe it was uh, this picture right here. This is um, the Filippo Grinaleski was the one who was responsible for putting this tower on top here. He built this dome. He was an architect, designer, and sculptor, but this had remained 
incomplete or incomplete for over a hundred years. And it wasn't until Brinoleski came along when he started looking at, again, those studies that had been brought up by the, uh, the Medici, Medici family from past. And he actually went to the path of the Pantheon, or excuse me, the uh, Pantheon, and watched how this was built, which was built close to a thousand years earlier. People had lost the knowledge of how do you build domes. And it wasn't until he went back here to be able to see how it was constructed, to be able to figure out how to build it. Now, the interesting thing is when he was talking to the church about this, and the church said, well, we want to see your designs. We want to see how you're going to do this. And he said, well, I can't show you. And they asked, well, why? And he said, well, take this egg, and I want you to stand it up on the desk here. And they tried to do it, and it would roll over. It wouldn't work. He took it, and he slammed it down, smashed it, and it stood up. And he said, well, that was too easy. You, you, you didn't tell us that. And that's what he said. If I tell you what it is, you will see that it's so obvious that I will lose my trade secrets, and therefore this is why I can't tell you. It was such an easy thing, like Occam's razor. The simplest thing is often the easiest thing, but yet it had been lost for over a thousand years, and it took him going back and reading that research that had been lost to be able to figure out how do you go and do that which had been lost for a thousand years. Even, for example, concrete had been lost. The ability to create it, which was how this was originally created in the first place, using concrete. So, you know, you can't get something from nothing. You need to have those layered experiences and um, Brinoleski was able to be able to figure out how do you go back and piece those different pieces together, which is amazing that he was able to do that. Indeed, indeed. Again, um, you know, I could talk to you for hours about this stuff, but um, sadly, I've, I've got to go. So so uh, we've been talking with Ty Glover and go to his website, which is, again, um, think differently. Beautiful, and uh, I knew you see. I, I you know I get it. It just took me a moment to. Uh, to I'm computer challenged. I had it on the wrong. Yeah, anyway, second left, left. Exactly. So, uh, young man, you have yourself a wonderful day, and I want to thank you for being on the podcast today. Kevin, it was my pleasure. Thank you, and again, thank you to your audience for, for watching. You betcha. Stay right where you are. I'll be right to bake. Thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of KMmedia.pro. Please visit our website, oddly enough, named KMmedia.pro for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to each other because each other's all we've got. We'll see you next time.